My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. G'day everyone. Today we're here with Associate Professor Andrew McIsaac. Andrew is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer and the Director of Cardiology at St. Vincent's Hospital. Hi Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us about your current roles and what they involve? Well, I have two main roles at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. My first role is as the Director of Cardiology. Here, we have quite a large cardiology unit that's very busy, so I work in that unit. About half my time is clinical work, working in the unit. The other half of my time uh, may be administration and other issues involving running the hospital on the department. My second role at St. Vincent's Hospital is that I am the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, so I'm the executive member of the hospital responsible for all the junior medical staff, and I oversee all issues related to their, uh, to them. How have you come to be in these roles? Uh, well, it's not through any uh, specific training or anything, but I suppose that uh, uh, my role as Director of Cardiology at St. Vincent's, I uh, had a junior job here as a junior member of the staff. Uh, I was involved in management and administration, and uh, over time, I assumed more responsibilities within the department. I think very early on, I recognised that it's nice to come in and work in a hospital and work in a department and treat the patients, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of organisation required for that or to be effective and efficient. So I suppose I got involved in that level, and then when there was the opportunity to be director, I was fortunate enough to be appointed. Once I was the director of cardiology, then um, I worked on several hospital committees and at times when people went on leave or sabbatical leave for instance then I was the acting director of the medicine in the hospital for a while and once I suppose people saw me in that role then I had the opportunity to apply and be appointed as the deputy chief medical officer. I have no formal background in medical training in that way. I'm a a clinical doctor and I suppose the things that I've uh, learned along the way I've had to pick up I had to pick them all up and that's been not only through my role within the hospital but I've been involved in organizations outside the hospital as well so for a while I worked on the board of the National Heart Foundation in Victoria and then I worked in the cardiac society volunteered to work in the cardiac society which is the professional organization for cardiologists in the country and I became involved in the board of the Cardiac Society and then I was also fortunate enough to be made president of the Cardiac Society which I've just finished doing. So that's involved a lot of administrative and organisational issues and uh, I think that doctors need to recognise that um, it's one thing to concentrate on treating the patients and that's all our primary responsibility but in order for the patients to be treated well we need to have proper systems an organisation to deliver health care and you can't depend on non-doctors to have all the knowledge required 
to put that uh, to organise that effectively, and that doctors have a responsibility uh, to be involved in the uh, delivery of healthcare as well. So coming into these uh, more managerial roles, is that something that uh, you should be, I guess, if, if, it's, if it interests you, should you be aiming to do that or is that something that you kind of fall into if you're in the I right think place at the right time? I think that uh, there are groups of people, there is, of course, a special um, training to be a medical administrator and there's a college of medical administrators and a lot of uh, very skilled people who do a lot of training in management, who, for instance... Several of the major hospitals in Melbourne are the CEOs, the doctors. Uh, Brendan Murphy, Professor Brendan Murphy, who was the CEO of the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, he's now going to be the chief medical officer of the country. So, but he started off as a clinician mm. as well, but done a lot of training, and there are other people who have done a, a lot of training. But I think that uh, most doctors, uh, in whatever role they play, there are things that need to be organised and systems and care for their patients. And on the whole, doctors, I suppose, uh, have a good sense of what's needed to deliver good health care. They mightn't be experts in financial management. They may not necessarily be experts in human relations or all the other skills. But a lot of skills you get through uh, clinical training are relevant to uh, organising things. And I think that um, every doctor should have uh, an anticipation that they're doing things. And even people working in private practice it's a small business, essentially. You've got mm. to know how to run it. Can you tell us what your typical day involves at the moment? You mentioned that it's split around 50 yes, So, So I'm um, also, unlike most doctors in the country, I'm a full-time hospital employee, so I work at St. Vincent's on the staff. So my day, every day involves coming to St. Vincent's Hospital, and I have uh, by work by roster. So some weeks, for instance... I'm the cardiologist on call for the hospital, so I'd go do daily ward rounds of the coronary care unit, see all the patients, and look, help supervise the registrars and the interns and the other medical staff, and nursing staff for help looking after the patients in the hospital. So that would be one style of week I'd do. Every week I run two or three outpatient clinics that I go and see patients in. And then being an interventional cardiologist, I also work in the cath lab. So I have two days a week where I work in the cath lab. How long I spend in the cath lab each day depends on demand on that day. Uh, and then in between those things, I go to meetings and organise the department and uh, help organise the hospital. What would you say is the most rewarding part about your specialty in general in all of your roles? Well, I think the most rewarding part is clearly treating patients. And one of the things about cardiology is you can make a huge impact on patients' lives, well, you can save their life, really. We all know that cardiovascular disease is either the leading or second leading cause of death in our community, depending on which statistics you read. And all those people are from heart attacks and heart failure, and you can treat those people and make them feel much better. From when I was a medical student, really my view was treating heart attack patients involved uh, giving them some morphine and saying a prayer at St. Vincent's. I don't know what they did at other hospitals, but it was equally effective. And now we can uh, stent arteries or thrombolize people. We can uh, cure people with coronary disease, have them leave hospital a day or so after presenting with a heart attack in a good state of health. It's a huge transformation. They make a really positive impact on people's lives. And even heart failure patients, you can 
you can treat them and stabilize many of them as well so i think treating patients is what it's what it's really about uh, and on the whole the sort of medicine i do is acute medicine you know acutely sick patients how did you come to be to get into interventional cardiology Oh, well, I think it had something to do with a bottle of wine in the south of France with my wife. <laughs> I don't really know. Well, so I suppose that uh, my view of all this uh, is that um, uh, when I was a medical student, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was one of those people, I think as many medical students are, everything I did, I quite enjoyed. There were a few things that I decided I probably didn't want to do that didn't suit my personality, but most of the things I did, I quite enjoyed. Um, and then in my second year of training, I the main things I did in my second year were cardiology and renal medicine. And I enjoyed those because I enjoyed acute things more than chronic things, and I enjoyed procedural things more than non-procedural things. So I didn't really know whether I wanted to be a nephrologist or a cardiologist at that stage. I think it's hard to do something you haven't experienced. Um, but uh, I thought they suited my personality, and I started off actually doing nephrology training, and then I decided to change to cardiology. I think at that time, a lot of very sick people were under the, uh, the renal unit at St. Vincent, but I enjoyed very much. But then there were a lot of chronic uh, patients on hemodialysis, uh, and long-term things, and I just sort of thought that maybe cardiology would uh, suit my personality better. Uh, I've never regretted that decision, but I don't know. I think I might have been okay at being a re- renal doctor too, but I don't know. don't think I would have been very good at being a, de- a doctor that concentrates on chronic disease uh, sort of thing. I don't think mm-hmm. I'm sort of a rehab sort of person. I'm not patient enough. Yeah, you prefer the acute yeah, acute medicine. Yeah. I think that that's really important when people are, um, I think, in their training and doing things, just assessing your own reaction to things. You know, what do you think when something acute happens? You know, like um, our accident patient brought in or someone really sick. Do you want to go and be involved or do you want to run away? There's no right or wrong answer to that question, but if you don't really want to be involved in looking after a really sick patients, probably not a good idea to aim to be a trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. And what was it about interventionally, uh, interventional cardiology that uh, brought well, you Well, I suppose that? I like procedures and doing things. I always liked playing with Meccano and Lego and mm-hmm. all those sort of things. Um, uh, I think a lot of uh, cardiology involves uh, understanding of physiology and physics and that's all about pressures and electrical currents and ultrasound it's all you know although there is big area about genetics and biology and lipids and things i sort of all those mechanical aspects of things appealed to me i suppose a bit of a geek when it comes to technology and gadgets so i like (laughs) that and but i also like the fact that um uh the huge impact that, as I mentioned before, of opening someone's coronary arteries, having a heart attack, making them really better. I thought this was good work to be doing. Wonderful. Uh, conversely, what part of your role or your everyday life is most difficult to deal with? Well, I think that uh, there's lots of demands, and I think prioritisation of tasks is always very, very difficult, and working efficiently when you've got lots of things on the, the go. I think that's the 
the most challenging thing. There are still people, patients that we can't cure, that we can't help, uh, and that's always difficult to deal with. Uh, but that's also important work, making sure that everybody's treated appropriately or the limits of available uh, medical knowledge. Uh, so, but I think prioritising and uh, having time, I always enjoy it when I just have one thing to do mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm concentrating. How would you say your role has evolved going from being a cardiology registrar to a consultant and finally to director of cardiology? Well, I'd like to think I've got better <laughs> as I've got <laughs> older. Um, I've certainly got more experienced. Um, I think that uh, when I first started, I was very mindful of all the things I didn't know and I couldn't do. And I wouldn't pretend there are, that I know everything now or can do everything. But when I first started, I thought, well, the reason I didn't know it was because I hadn't learnt that fact or wasn't smart enough or whatever. And there are still things, I'm sure, like that. But I also now have a better understanding of what is known, what can be done, uh, And that's just a bit of perspective also, much more aware of the patterns of disease and what the expected outcomes of patients are, which I didn't really, it was a bit of a surprise to me when you first start. So I suppose I've become a lot more more, uh, experienced. I think that in medicine, of course, you start off, you're taking a lot of direction, and now maybe I'm giving a lot of of direction, and that's been a big... uh, change but the thing that hasn't changed is I get to work with some awesome people and the you know the patients on the whole they might not always show you how grateful they are but you know you're doing many of them do and you know you're doing good work but you get to work with some wonderful people both doctors nurses and all the other people I allied health people I work with I really enjoy that has your involvement with the multidisciplinary team changed as you've gone from registrar to director I suppose so, um, that maybe I always, you know, had great respect, especially for the nursing staff. And in cardiology, a lot of technologists, you know, people who do sonographers, who do echocardiograms and technologists work in the cardiac cath lab doing pressures and assessing ECGs and things. And we, we work with nurses both in the ward and in the cath lab um, that I've always held them in high regard. But I've really, I suppose with time, I've seen nursing evolve taking on a lot more responsibilities and uh, really um, come to appreciate more the, the absolutely important role they play in the delivery of good, good health care. And I've also uh, appreciate much more the importance of teamwork, that when you're a small clog in the machine, you sort of think if you fall out, well, no one will notice or it won't really matter. But now from where I sit, I can see the importance of the roles that everybody plays. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Now back to the show. Talking of evolution, you mentioned that not too long ago when a patient came in with a heart attack, you gave him morphine and pred. Now it's changed a lot. How do you see cardiology changing in the next five to ten years or beyond? Well... Cardiology, and it's not unique in this way, but it's one of the species very technologically dependent. 
So the big advances have been in technology and drugs, and I'm sure they'll continue. When I started cardiology training, there was no stenting. Stents hadn't been invented. Um, there were no percutaneous valves. The only real treatment I can, re- you know, showing my age now, I can remember when I was an intern, ACE inhibitors were introduced, and this <laughs> made people's heart failure better. So there's been huge improvement in treatment, and we've got on the threshold of a lot of new drugs to treat lipids and uh, uh, other aspects of cardiac. So I'm sure that um, some of the things we won't have even imagined yet that can be done, but it'll be very technologically driven. I think the uh, idea of uh, non-invasive approaches will become more important over traditional surgery, um, and that drugs will become much more uh, uh, effective. There's been a huge improvement in the outlook of people having a heart attack, and mortality's been improved, but there's still a long way to go. I think we're treating older people too now. One of the difference, I can remember I went on a rotation when I was a uh, registrar and no one over 65 was allowed to be admitted to that hospital's coronary care unit because you're just too old to care about, you know, really. It was a valuable resource we had to use for the real young people. Now we're seeing much more elderly people as life expectancy goes on and uh, we'll have to, uh, and many of them are very healthy apart from what's happening to their heart. But these will be new challenges that need to be overcome. With the technologically dependent um, procedures that are coming about, do you see a role for robotics or other, um, I guess, specialties taking over these kinds of procedures from well, interventional cardiologists? I, I think that, um, uh, that we're a fair way, yeah, from robotic procedures um, my general understanding, and of course I'm not a surgeon, you're maybe aware there's robots who do surgery, but they're not autonomous, they're just translating a surgeon's movements of his hands and maybe miniaturising them, that um, I don't think robots will necessarily uh, uh, take over. I think one of the challenges that happens is happening in medicine is people become more and more specialised um, uh, and maybe if we get to the point where people are just doing stenting and that's all they do, are they really doctors still? You know, do you need to be a doctor to do some of these procedures? Or would a really highly skilled uh, technologist be good at doing it? Should we go get the most dexterous person we can to go and do a procedure? You know, if we, because a lot of, uh, previously, you know, a lot of surgery and cardiology involved in assessing the patient and making clinical judgment. But now we're getting more and more subspecialised. I think that's people that get very subspecialised, maybe sometimes, you know, doing repetitive tasks over and over again. Some of those things might be repeated. But there's no doubt that um, human contact is really important and that huge emotional and psychological component of the disease. Uh, you know, robots would have to get a bit better. I don't really talk to Siri very much and get <laughs> sympathetic responses. So um, I think that those sort of things are going to be very difficult to replace. Uh, I think it'll help what we, we can do, uh, and that will mean that individual doctors can do more, But I, I and it will, will change. But I don't see people who are interacting with patients uh, you know, being replaced with machines is certainly in my lifetime anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the medical students of today by the time <laughs> they retire. 
You alluded to this before with regards to um, dealing with acute medicine, but um, aside from that, who is suited to become a cardiologist or to go through cardiology? Well, um, I, I think that you need to be uh, someone who is uh, acute medicine, but there are chronic aspects to cardiology as well. You can do cardiac rehab, so you don't all have to be acute things. I think you need someone who's uh, driven and focused, that cardiac uh, disease um, is not a very elective thing sometimes, so you mm -hmm. need people who are dedicated, who are prepared to work uh, outside normal normal business hours, I think, and work by roster. Uh, I also uh, uh, think that, like many other, but it probably applies to any other, you need meticulous people who uh, follow through on what they, they do. But I think you really need... Uh, you know, the way I look at the world is you, you've just sort of got to have um, the right personality for the right sort of specialty training. That uh, there are some people who would make, I mean, I think many of the medical students I see today and young doctors are so talented, they could do anything. But they, they want to be the square peg in the square hole and not the square peg in the round hole. So if you don't, you've got to sort of figure out what you have aptitude to do and what you really enjoy doing. I think if you decide that you always wanted to be a neurosurgeon and your mother had said that since you were in kindergarten and you don't have a real aptitude to it, you're going to struggle against people who it's their real passion and really want to do it and are really uh, have an aptitude towards that sort of work. Uh, and I think all medical students are very capable and all, into, you know, all the young doctors I meet are so capable. It's a matter of making sure you go down a stream that plays your strengths. And sometimes you don't know what they are until you're exposed to a variety of clinical situations. And you've got to think about what situations do I feel uncomfortable in or don't like and what situations do I like. And, uh, of course, there are some things no one likes doing, mm -hmm. you know, like dealing with... Uh, you know, dying. You know, there are things that are emotionally distressing for everyone, but and some things you need training to do. But there are some people who, despite the amount of training they have, they might be fairly good at what they do, but they're not going to be exceptional. And I often say, you know, that we could get the cardiology unit and retrain them to all to be the neurologists at the hospital. I suspect many of them would be able to be competent neurologists, but they wouldn't be great at it. Mm -hmm. With regard to choosing junior doctors and employing interns and whatnot, how do you uh, go about doing that and how heavily weighted is, for example, personality versus extracurricular work versus academics? Yeah, sure. So this is uh, a, a difficult uh, assessment always um, and there's always the um, falling back on objective criteria so you can justify what you've done and of course the most objective thing is academic results but I don't feel personally that academic results necessarily translate into how good a doctor you're going to be there are people who have exceptional results who may be not such good doctors and the other way around I generally believe there's a trend you know that that people do well at medical school because they're thought to demonstrate the skills that are needed to be a doctor so probably people who do better on the whole but individually i think that personality and aptitude are terribly important but it's very difficult to assess and that you 
probably aware, most of the medical students now have been through all sorts of uh, testing even to get into medical school. And uh, some hospitals put people in situational environment. But until you people actually seem working, it is, it is hard. But I think you want people who you think you can train and you can trust to look after your patients. So we're really looking for dependable people uh, who are conscientious, uh, uh, hardworking, but also willing to learn, want to take advice and direction, but also uh, inform back about important issues that they, they can see and things can be improved as well. So I think a global picture really is required, but it's very difficult to assess people, especially if you have a very uh, our current practice of interviewing. You know, you get an opinion and you just have to make the best. I wouldn't say we always get it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as medical students, how much uh, effort do you think we should be putting into both extracurricular work and research um, compared to knuckling down and getting our grades? Well, uh, I think that the primary thing you need to be a good doctor is have medical knowledge. Right? So I think you should concentrate on that and uh, do well at that. Not everybody. Well, the minority of doctors are going to end up researchers, so not everybody's going to do that. Research is another objective thing that can be measured. So you can say, well, we can take Dr. X over Dr. Y because look at the research they've done. That's That's an objective thing. That would be one way to go. But I don't think necessarily because you've done research would make you a better doctor. It might make you a good researcher. Uh, on the other hand, I think it is important to understand where medical knowledge comes from and have people who are interested to inquire in the gaps. So I think some knowledge of research and uh, some involvement is, 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 is very important and can distinguish people. So, but I think your primary thing should be your uh, academic, you know, your studies. And as for extracurricular things, that uh, we're looking for well-balanced people. So if the only knowledge you have has come out of a book, you're going to struggle when you're a doctor and you've got to deal with real people. So I think putting yourself in real-life situations and interacting with other people is very important. Um, do we uh, do we look for people who've made world peace to be our residents in junior medical? Probably not, but we do want to know that people have uh, uh, can interact with others and have concern for other people and patients. Uh, so we do look at all those aspects. And at St. Vincent's, we sort of, it's the usual rule of a third, you know, a third is uh, your academic and a third is your interview and maybe a third is what you've, you've done. But really that's to assess your, your, your personality. But uh, uh, I think that uh, there's no point doing something just because you think it's going to be good for your career. Mm-hmm. I think you want to do something that you really want to do and that you're interested in. So, you know, there's nothing worse than people saying, I want to do research, but they're not really interested in doing research. They just want to get a tick on their CV. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I'm um, going off to feed the poor because it's going to look good on my CV. Um, I, I think we want to... Doctors need to be genuine people. Mm-hmm. As someone who sees many interns and junior doctors mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. through on a mm-hmm. yearly basis, mm-hmm. what would you say... Uh, some of the most common mistakes that are made or the common misconceptions and how do we rectify those? Well, I think that uh, one of the common mistakes that people make is that they think that people, 
don't know what they're doing or watching them. And uh, they think that if they project one sort of image of themselves to those people they consider are important and uh, behave in a different way to people that they don't consider are important. And maybe that might even be the cleaner or the lady bringing around the dinner, those sort of things. So they, they, I think there's a sort of belief that no one knows what people, you know, that you can fool people a little bit. This doesn't happen very often, but I think that's uh, a, a mistake that people very rapidly understand what junior medical staff uh, are like. And of course, your personality comes out because you are under pressure. It is a stressful time and, you know, you can't go in and act and pretend you're not someone who you are. So I think you want to uh, make sure that you treat everybody the way you feel they should be treated. I think the other thing is that uh, um, people need to recognise that it's life's, in my view, a bit of a two-way street. You know, if you go a bit further, other people go a bit further with you. So if you show interest, you're around, you, you help other people, uh, then other people will also help you. And that's different from being a, a medical student where you're uh, being taught by a university and a curriculum's delivered and it's very clear, well, relatively clear what you need to know and what you need to do. It's much more diffuse being a doctor. So we need people who are dedicated and work hard, but not, I'm not saying they do anything unreasonable, uh, and follow through and are uh, uh, consistent. Uh, and just be mindful that anything you do or any interaction you have, uh, someone will know about it. And uh, there's a reason they keep making television series and films about hospitals, you know, <laughs> because it, there's lots of things happen. How would you say your work-life balance is at the moment? And how do you juggle family and work and everything? Well, I'm... Uh, um, so when I started doing medicine, th there wasn't such a thing as work-life balance. Right? That was that's a new new, new concept uh, from when I first started. Um, I came from a background. Uh, my father was a doctor, and he worked. It was on call every day, all day, and frequently out at night, and very busy. But the thing I learned from him was that if you're going to be a busy person, that uh, you can only do so many things in life and you have to decide what your priorities are going to be. So uh, two things, um, I work and I'm with my family. Probably not in that order, actually. Uh, so um, uh, for instance, I haven't got, maybe to my detriment, I suppose, a little bit, you know, lots of hobbies or activities or interests that I do on my own, myself. All my activities involve my family and my, my wife and my children. So uh, you've got to uh, uh, prioritise things, I think. But I think that um, uh, I decided to become a staff... One of the reasons I became a staff doctor was I had this naive idea that I could work nine to five and go home and be with <laughs> the family. Uh, hasn't quite worked out that way, I think. Uh, medicine's like all professions. No one gets anywhere by goofing off. You know, if you want to achieve and get ahead, you've got to work hard. And if you want to support your family or be involved in supporting your family, uh, then you need to work hard if that's what you're going to do. And then it depends, I think, for young people, what what your partner 
uh, interests are and what their commitments are. So then you've got to figure out uh, how that's going to work with your partner and uh, whether you're going to do people who work a lot or whether one person's going to be home. And these are very, uh, you know, alternating or one person primarily taking that role. And they're the sort of things that need to be, be sorted out a little bit. And uh, it is hard to get that balance right. But I think it's possible. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Now back to the show. As someone who's been through from internship to where you are now, what would you say was a period of time in your life which had the, I guess, the worst work-life balance? Worst work-life balance? Uh... I don't know how to measure it, actually, mm. work-life balance. I, uh, uh, and maybe someone else should be asked that question <laughs> in my family. I think that when I was a junior doctor and an intern, uh, even though I came from a medical family, I wasn't prepared for working 80-hour weeks, 90-hour weeks. Uh, these things don't happen anymore. For instance, when I came on work, after working a normal week, including Friday, then you come on call and you'd sleep in the hospital and you work all day Friday, Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night, all day Sunday, Sunday night, and go home on Monday night when things were finished. So I wasn't quite prepared for that, but I suppose at that stage when I was an intern, when those hours, and I emphasise again, people don't do that anymore, I was a single person and, uh, you know, I just, all I did was work, I mm-hmm. think, at that stage. And one of my uh, things I've done as the deputy chief medical officer of the hospital is significantly reduce a large number of the junior medical staff hours. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, So that's pretty much all the questions that we had. Uh, Just one last thing, is there anything else, any other pieces of advice you'd love to give an intern or a final year medical student? Well, I think that uh, being a doctor is a fantastic thing and I love it very much. I think just to recognise how privileged people are to be doctors and the special role you play in society and the special privileges you have because you're a doctor and to enjoy it, right? It's great. Awesome being a doctor. And people get all caught up in all these other issues that aren't so relevant uh, in my view. And I think that if you enjoy, just make sure you enjoy what you're doing and see the the huge contribution you're making. And and I think that there's um, one of the difference across the generations is the sort of a lack of faith now that things will work their ways out or, you know, it'll all be okay, right? And I think just concentrate on what you're doing and do it really well and enjoy it and think how lucky you are to do what you're doing. And, you know, sometimes I hear people complaining about being a doctor. Go off and be an accountant if you want. If you want to make money, go and be an entrepreneur, right? There are other... Th- lots of other things you could do. I'd never do any of those things. I reckon it's really awesome being a doctor. There's nothing makes me better than walking around the hospital seeing people obviously enjoying what they're doing, even if they're and doing it really well. They don't have to be smiling all the time. But, you know, uh, but the, that I think that people, occasionally people lose sight of that. 
and uh, I have to tell the interns here sometimes, you know, well, do you, you're enjoying being a doctor? You know, it's never actually occurred to them, some mm. of them. <laughs> you just brought up one other question that I had. When deciding what hospital to apply to for yes. an internship, what yes. factors should go into Yes, so th- th- this is like, this is along the lines of deciding which football team I'm going to support <laughs> or what colour is going to be my colour, right? It, it's things that, like most things, that have little basis or little fact behind them, people feel very strongly and very passionately about it, right? So I think that... Um, uh, you need to go and think about who you're going to be working with, and who's going to be supervising you. And my rule in my uh, life and uh, medical career had always been try and work for the best po- person possible. Sometimes you don't have a choice what you do. Uh, I think that uh, you need to go and look at the hospital you want to work at and think about the reputation of the hospital. But we're very fortunate in Australia, the standard of healthcare is extremely high, and although uh, people will tell you this hospital is so much better than that hospital, it's not usually true, and that uh, uh, you just need to think about what's going to be convenient for you, where you're going to be happy, and think about what do the hospitals tell you, and does that correspond with your sort of personal values and aspirations. Uh, things about got to go to Hospital X because if you want to be a you know left lung surgeon, you've only can go to Hospital X. I'd, <laughs> I'd forget about all that stuff. I'd just get trained as as well as as well as you can. Uh, the only th- other thing I'd say was if you wanted thought you might want to do specialist training, although it's possible to uh, come you know move around, and we have people here at St Vincent's who've worked at rural and regional hospitals. But on the whole, the specialist training is based in the bigger hospitals. And so, you know, they have the specialists to train you. So if you thought you wanted to do specialist training, you're probably better off to be in a place where there are people who can, where there are established specialist training programs. And But if you wanted to do something, I mean, by specialist, I mean physician or surgeon or whatever. But if you were interested in being other areas of general practice or other things, then uh, you know, they, that's not such such a concern. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the med collab. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. All right, guys, see you next week.